following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And, and this, this is, is Box, Box Office, Office 30. 30. Get your ass to Moss. Get your ass to Moss. Get your ass to Moss. Hello, hello. Welcome to Box Office 30. Welcome to our very first episode, our inaugural episode. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Pete. How are you? I'm all right. <laughs> I'm happy that we've finally are made our way here. You know, this is like a uh, long time coming. You and I finally getting together on one of these. <laughs> this is at least ten years in the making of uh, you know pondering a podcast. So it's it's kind of cool to like sit here and and chat and uh, you know fart around for a little while and, and rehash some old legacy movies here and there. Absolutely. You know, it's like before we uh, join this tonight to start talking, I. Uh, was looking back at um, some of my old stuff from the original podcast I did, and I'm a little um, sad to say that those are like over 10 years ago now. I used to do a podcast, PeteCast, and uh, that first episode of that was 2007. So I was 24 the last time that I was officially, officially doing a podcast, you know, or at least when I started it. I did like one weird one-off episode in like 2010, I think. <laughs> And, and, and the, the original episode of the PeteCast was 14 hours long of you talking yeah. and ranting and <laughs> Yeah, no, they weren't good. You know, that's the funny part. You know, and I think that's kind of what we're going to run into a lot with uh, Box Office 30 here is like, again, looking through things through the prism of time. Uh, and man, those podcasts just did not age up well. I went and listened back to them and they were not good. <laughs> you, know you, were, you were very right. Mike had recorded a, a, a response back to my uh, initial podcast pulling it apart and man you were you were right <laughs> time time has proven you very correct <laughs> no, no judgment the funny thing is like so back in the day when we wanted to try something like we, the the technology just wasn't there to achieve these kind of things that we're able to do now from a distance which is pretty cool definitely and uh it's it's funny how how time finally figured out a way to catch up and and make it work because there, there was no way of being able to do this from, you know, 50, 60 miles away 10 years ago. So it's kind of exciting to be able to have this opportunity other than just sitting on the phone or throwing each other a text message and complaining about <laughs> movies. Now we can talk about it in person and, and let the world hear how annoyed we were or how excited we were about movies 30 years ago. Uh, yeah, no, totally. And obviously we're living in the Rona times here. So, you know, it it seems like a fortuitous time, not only for the technology to be allowing us to um, bridge the gap, as it were, um, but also to, uh, you know, spend what I, I was going to say what free time we have to uh, to look back on movies like this. Although, you know, free time is actually, I think, harder to come by in, in coronavirus Dude. than I thought it might have been. Dude, it really is harder to come by. Like you'd think, oh, you know what? I'm not commuting to the city four hours a day i'll have a little extra time uh, you know those of you guys who you know know me from wherever you know i like to read a lot of comic books or watch a lot of tv and movies 
I am so far behind on all of my like nerdy entertainment content that it could take me two years to catch back up to where I am <laughs> up to date. So it's a little scary. So, well, I'm I'm sorry to have uh, dragged you along into this new venture, and we'll see how it goes in the uh, in the long term here. Um, but uh, this was one of these um, random pop into your head like in the middle of nowhere sort of concepts. So. Um, box office 30, the, the idea was, is that, you know, not only are you and I kind of movie fans, you know, certainly that's, um, what has kind of inevitably linked our lives together. And of course we can always go back some other time and talk the depths of that. But, uh, you know, we're both big movie guys. Uh, we love talking movies. And, uh, I think the other thing that's, that's really kind of pulled this into my mind is a lot of this stuff that especially I think is exacerbated by social media memes and things like that now where it's like oh such and such movie is 20 years old today such and such movie is 30 years old today and it's like wow all of a sudden i'm feeling <laughs> very old <laughs> so i think this is not only a uh, podcast for um the nostalgia fan and the movie fan but it's for us um folks approaching the middle years here who can kind of look back on our childhood and some of these um very formative um, movies from the 90s uh, and kind of reapproach that and sort of uh, re-examine them uh, through the through the again the prism of you know 2020 now yeah, and it's a lot of times when you see or rehash movies from 30 years ago you look at it now in 2020 and you look at it in a very different lens and what you might have thought was awesome when you were eight nine ten years old now in your later 30s you're like oh that wasn't great or that won't translate well or that's still awesome but it's awesome in a different way and it's kind of fun to like think about those things and, and look at it and get a better perspective as a, as an adult versus when you're a kid and you're wide-eyed and oh i'm gonna see an awesome movie for whatever reason so. <laughs> uh, yeah definitely I, I think um you know not to make a terrible dad joke right off the bat here but we're in 2020 it's like looking back in 2020 vision on some of this stuff um yeah it's it's way it's way different in some respects now um you know what sort of movies are being produced these days versus what was being produced back then um you know i was looking earlier at the trailer for our, our featured movie to start off and uh, the way that the trailers were produced back then are just so different and so funny now they're almost comical um compared to like you know the really really kind of crazy um version that we see in today's trailers and so i think the same kind of goes for the movies but um, yeah, it's definitely going to be a fun uh, journey re-exploring some of this stuff. Agreed. Do you want to dive into it? We'll get rocking and rolling. Yeah. So first I thought we would just mention a little bit about kind of how Box Office 30 is going to work. So uh, the very obvious um, end of Box Office 30 is we are taking a trip 30 years back um, to 1990. Uh, we're planning to try and do this podcast on a monthly basis. We'll see how well we do at that, but um, the, the hope would be to go month by month and talk about um, what are the biggest box office hits in each of those months. Um, we can kind of talk a little bit our, about our own memories or experiences towards those. Um, and we kind of came up with a, a little set of rules to live by. Um, so uh, we're going to probably try and do every episode a big featured review involving uh, whatever's the biggest box office hit in a given month. Uh, and then kind of also chat about some of the smaller ones that happened in that time, because actually there's an unbelievable wealth of amazing movies that are coming out in this time period that um, I think that's the other thing is I had this idea and then I started looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, there's like a real wealth of really cool movies that we could be talking about every month. 
Um, so that may or may not have been the biggest movie. It's true. Yes. Yeah. That might not have been the ones at the top of the list. And actually, I think sometimes shockingly so, given what some of them are. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll try and cover those and we'll try and um, hit harder on a, a big feature review each time. Naturally, that'll be the biggest movie for a given month with the only caveat on if we have a movie that's going for multiple months in that top spot, we'll just move down the list to the next spot and take a look at that one. And essentially each time we're going to rewatch the movie, we're going to review it again through the prism, the spectrum of 30 years in the future here now and kind of our newer ways of looking at it. And uh, again, you know, it's probably going to be a case where we haven't seen some of these movies in a while. Um, I think there's going to be some of them that we might not have seen at all, Um, but we'll be able to kind of take a closer look and see how we feel about them. That said, let's head into this month's Box Office 30. So we are pulling a lot of our information from boxofficemojo.com. And very specifically, I'm pulling things up from June 1990 here. All right, cool. So, uh, you know, our big, big movie this month is going to be, I think, one of my um, all-time favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, if not just one of all-time favorite 90s movies, is Total Recall. Um, but we'll really? circle this back on your, that. This was one of your favorite Schwarzenegger movies? Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that I was really stoked to particularly get this podcast going on this month, um, I, this movie in my mind is like such a perfect look back at, at exactly what movies in the 90s were. Like, just the bombastic action. It's featuring Schwarzenegger. And I mean, like, what... You know, I mean, like, obviously, there's a lot of big, big action stars in the 90s. But like, oh, my God, who says 90s more than Arnold Schwarzenegger? Um, And yeah, I love this movie. I mean, you know me, Mr. Sci-Fi. So like this one definitely, you know, pushes all the buttons for me. That's true. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, makes sense. (laughs) Sounds good. So so we got a list here. Now, you know, I don't want to run all the way down the list because there's obviously 29 items on this list. And I think we would scare anybody away by sitting here reading them off one by one. But, you know, there's some... I would say probably right up through probably around, uh, I don't know, even maybe number 23. There's various titles in here that are, you know, surprisingly big titles that if you look back throughout time, you're like, oh, my God, these were all out in the same minute. Um, So I was curious, you know, like, are are there any that are in this list that are like big things that you really loved or related to at the time or or since? Okay, so... I'll do a quick little rundown. So obviously, number one is Total Recall, which is what we're going to be talking about predominantly tonight. Uh, number two is Dick Tracy, which I was a big, big fan of Dick Tracy, mainly because I, I love that style of genre. I, I loved, you know, Madonna in that movie and the Danny Elfman score. It was very much like a cheesier version of Batman 89, um, which is always kind of fun. Uh, another 48 hours I didn't see as a kid, but I did see a couple years later, and I I enjoy that movie. Back to the Future Part 3, which I, you know, some people say is better than 2. I think 2 is better, but it is a fun I'm with you on that one. type of Western movie, which is kind of cool. Um, <laughs> the funny part, I feel like I've heard the opposite for that one. You know, I'm a big, big Back to the Future person, and I, I love them all to death. 
I feel like a lot of people I've known throughout time have really hated on three. And I actually really like three. You know, I think it, it's like a nice little end cap um, to the series. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely with you. I'm a big uh, fan of, of, of course, of the first, but I'm a big fan of two. I, I love the idea of that uh, hover conversion and oh, hoverboards and all the things that we were promised and did not get. <laughs> did not get in 2015. <laughs> what a bummer. Uh, so then you, number five is Gremlins 2, The New Batch, which I find yes. I, I didn't realize it came out in 19. I thought it was an 80s movie, but I didn't realize it was 92, uh, uh, 90, zero, whatever. Uh, 90 also. Yeah, <laughs> I like but, that. 90 zero. Yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> totally. I mean, it's it's very funny. And like, uh, you know, I think one of the things I was going to mention to you, and I think this is going to go without saying, you know, based on the fact that like you and I in 1990, I'm like seven and a half right now. You're eight now. You just turned eight. Right. And so, you know, I think most of these we're not necessarily seeing in theaters yet, but I feel like a lot of these things are starting to pop up, you know, within a year or two, maybe three of here. I'm starting to see a lot of these for the first time. Maybe like, you know, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I probably saw like right around this time I'm, I'm kind of scrolling further down the yeah. list here. Um, but I was, I was going to ping this one off you and I was hoping this was going to evoke some memories for you. Cause I think a lot of these movies were introduced to me by, um, picks 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about for yourself? <laughs> uh, yeah, these were a lot of like, you know, Saturday night movies you'd see, you know, on, on channel 11 in, in New York, which is yes. kind of funny. <laughs> um, uh, we didn't have HBO growing up and that was how you kind of saw it is, you know, on, on uh, syndicated television months and months and months, if not years later. Now, the funny thing I noticed here is number six is pretty woman, which yes. premiered in March and it's still in theaters, which nowadays, if a movie lasts four weeks in the theaters is a long time. You're talking about three months and this movie's still kicking and it is clearly the highest grossing film of that entire year with 178 million at that time which is probably in today's money would be a billion if you Uh, yeah i mean it's it's you know we kind of missed doing that episode just for not having started our podcast a little bit earlier i think we probably would have uh, ended up possibly doing a review on that one but yeah it really had staying power you know and um I can very vividly, and I'm sure it's probably the case for you. I can very vividly remember my mom was like, she loved that movie. And like, as Mm -hmm. soon as it came out on VHS, you know, we were a big VHS family. And I'm sure actually, if I went (laughs) and took a trip out to my parents, I could probably dig this one um, out of the pile in the basement still. But, uh, you know, I I can definitely remember her um, buying that at Caldor's at the time, which obviously no longer exists. Yeah. And uh, and bringing that one home and definitely watching that. Now, obviously, I, I didn't watch that at that point in time because that was above my pay grade at that moment. But uh, yeah, it's, it's very funny seeing that, you know, some of these were really taking off like that. So the most surprising off this list for me is uh, number 15 cinema paradisimo, which is an Italian film. I didn't see till we were in film school in the early two thousands. I would have a never thought it would have been in the top 30 films of the year (laughs) and B to gross almost $12 million worldwide is, is kind of unbelievable. And it only was in 124 theaters in the world, which is Yeah, I was just crazy. about to point that number out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, and I mean, if you haven't seen it, if you 
don't mind subtitles. It's it's one of the few foreign language films that I really enjoy, and I I bought like the Criterion Collection on DVD nice. when it came out. <laughs> uh, it's a movie that I really like, and it's it's a it's a nice story, and it's a good movie. But there's a lot a lot of movies on here, and there's movies I've never heard. Yeah, of. I mean, just rounding out even a few more that we didn't mention. I mean, Bird on a Wire is a big movie. RoboCop yeah. Two, yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I did mention, but um, Cadillac Man. Another one of my big, big all-time favorite movies, The Hunt for Red October. Yeah, I love that um, movie. Yes, <laughs> that was another one that I think I probably, again, first time I saw probably on PIX11 or whatever there in the in the afternoon on Saturday or Sunday. And again, just had huge staying power with me. That's actually one of the very first DVDs I bought when I first got a DVD player. I think it's really? the very first DVD I ever watched was Hunt for Red October. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, but... Uh, Days of Thunder, Tom Cruise, uh, Betsy's Wedding. I don't know, and maybe I'll catch flack for that. But <laughs> I, I, I don't know Betsy's Wedding. Um, I didn't realize Driving Miss Daisy came out this year and made well over like 106 million. That's a lot of money for yeah for Driving Miss Daisy, uh, a movie that I'm surprised didn't make as much money as I thought it would have made. Is number 23, Joe versus the Volcano, which only made. 39 million worldwide i loved that movie that was a huge movie at the time and i thought that was would have been way higher on the list yeah definitely i especially when you have things and i think one of the other funny ones i wanted to point out on this list and i don't you'll tell me if you know this one or not um is number 16 the adventures of milo and otis do you know that movie i was eight years old of course i know that. Movie. <laughs> okay all right i just wanted to make sure you know, I, that one is another one where I think, again, like that one probably came home with me on VHS right quick. I know I've watched that movie like a million times. Mm -hmm. um, and that was another one, funny enough, when you bring up, you know, then finally getting into film school years later that I don't remember exactly how it came up. But like I had to like seriously reexamine that movie because basically I ended up finding out that it was a essentially like um, I believe it was a Japanese movie and they had like shot it like over the course of years and years and years. And then kind of they stitched it together and then had like an English dub or something done of it. And it's like, I kind of can't believe it's there. And it's funny because it has this note specifically under it that it's a 1990 release, uh, re-release rather. And I had to go back uh, and take a look. And I guess they had done a very small release of it um, in 89. So, you know, it's popped up again here on uh, in 915 theaters, sort of shockingly. Um and and got a re-release. Now, that one, I, you know, I, again, I don't remember really well when I was a little kid, what age I really started going to the theater. I have a few very specific memories of certain movies um, when I was a kid, but I don't know if that was one of the ones I would have caught in a theater. I don't know if I, I might have seen that in the theater because I also had a four-year-old sister. Um, so I'm not sure if we went like... I, I couldn't tell you what my first movie in the theaters was. Um, my most vivid memory is Batman 89, but I definitely saw movies in the theater before that. Maybe like Dis Disney films or some of that might have been, you know, the Jungle Book or. or yeah, that's that'd be Bambi my guess. I mean, I honestly can't remember which one I would have seen in the theaters. I have a pretty solid memory um, of going with my dad, of all people, because, <laughs> you know, I. I don't know about you. I feel like my mom was the one that was primarily taking me to to movies when I was a kid. Yeah, me too. Um, but I, my dad either um, voluntarily or I, I maybe not voluntarily. I remember going to see uh, Land Before Time with, and actually, I don't even remember when that would have been. 
Um, I, I but, can't uh, imagine your dad at Land Before Time. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem like his cup of tea. So it might have been that um, he got sent with me on, on that one rather than than specifically taking me to see that. But uh, that's one of the ones I definitely remember seeing as a kid. If there's something before that, it's just escaping me right now. But, uh, you know, like I said, we were definitely VHS and, and um, you know, seeing things on WB and such like that afterwards. And like you, I didn't have any HBO. So it was definitely a lot of these movies came to me later on. So the the funny thing about this list that I find really interesting is if you go all the way to the bottom, the 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 26th movie I've heard of but never seen it was is Tales from the Dark Side. I've heard of that movie, but I wouldn't know it from a hole in the wall. Um, but the last three movies, Wild Orchid, May Fools, and Red Surf. Never heard of any of these movies, and, I, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. So Wild Orchard was in 822 theaters, which is a pretty good amount for, for back then. And it made eleven million, but then May Fools went to thirty theaters and made one point five million. And then this Red Surf at the bottom of the list, the drop off from twenty eight to twenty nine is so substantial that I don't even know how it's even on the list or even why it's there. It goes from one point five million to thirteen thousand. <laughs> like, <laughs> how does that drop off like that? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I've just pulled up Red Surf separately, and this is one I just, I I have no clue what this movie is. Like, I I don't remember ever having heard of this one before, and the poor little bugger did 13,000 worldwide. Um, The interesting thing is it claims to have been in release for um, 30 weeks, um, which is, you know, that's crazy, but it's also, it's got its widest release in six theaters, so I think the poor bugger was doomed to fail, and particularly, again, the release date of it was June 1st, which is also the exact same day as our top movie, Total Recall. So uh, it just wasn't in any sort of zone to uh, compete, I guess. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I almost feel like it, it'd be worthy uh, to, for us to try and um, take some of these uh, like tail end of the, <laughs> the list movies and try and do them a do little bu- justice maybe in future look- podcasts, try and look them up and see if we can breathe a little life back into them <laughs> do, do, do a bonus episode of how to actually do a scavenger hunt to find some of these movies that yes yeah be, i imagine gonna, some of them are going to be pretty impossible <laughs> so anyway this is a pretty interesting list for for 1990 I, I i'm again like you said surprised that all of these movies came out this year and this is only 29 films of what could have been hundreds of that time yeah, well, and again, specifically, we're looking at just what these are doing in June 1990, right? So, I right. mean, this is like this is like a pretty big A list of movies um, for that specific time. And of course, you know, like the summer season of uh, you know movies is always like a big, big deal. It's when they put out a lot of these heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some of these are like you know movies that have gone down in time as big, big hits. Yeah. Um, so it's it's pretty cool to kind of see that they were all like living in the theater at the same time because. Uh, you know, obviously, certainly not right at this exact moment in time where the theaters are are empty. But, uh, you know, uh, on any other sort of given time in more recent years, I don't know if you'd be able to pull quite such a list where there's so, so many big name movies that, you know, really, I think, have stood the test of time, um, you know, either in in mainstream sort of feelings or at least in kind of cult classic or niche sort of um, areas. Yeah, I mean, most theaters, at most, they might carry 13 movies, tops, and 
it's just amazing to see that like the top 10 films are in even the top 15 films are, are close to 2000 to 1500 theaters that they're in at the time, which is pretty crazy. So I find that very interesting. Absolutely. All right. I thought maybe we would take a look, see if we can uh, shake loose our rusty memories and uh, take a look at our top, top movie this week, which is total recall um, <laughs> without maybe a good uh, segment name for this one. Maybe we'll even call this segment total recall. <laughs> That's pretty good. I, I, I dig it. I'm down. I like it. All right. Um, so I thought what we would do um, for this particular segment, again, you know, we're looking at things um, through the veil of time. And I know my memory is not what it necessarily used to be. And even though I, I say to you that Total Recall is one of my favorite, favorite movies of all time, I, I'm curious without um, going through and having done the full rewatch to do a full review yet, what you and I might be able to remember, recall about this movie and, um, you know, think about uh, how that affected us maybe earlier on in time and how we might uh, view this movie these days. I'm going to have a lot of trying to recall stuff from this movie because I haven't seen <laughs> this movie. I mean, I think I've seen this movie in its entirety maybe twice. Otherwise, I've seen bits wow. and pieces here and there. Like, it's one of those movies that, like, I don't know. Like, I love Schwarzenegger too, but I don't know if this was one that really grabbed me, whereas, like, movies like Running Man or... Oh, or, totally. Or Terminator or even Kindergarten Cop, like I was obsessed with. This was one of those movies. I think it was it was a little bit over my head at the time. And I just there were parts that were so frightening to it that I was like, I can't watch this that, I, you know, kind of turned me off as a kid. Totally. And again, you know, like it's hard for me to remember what would have been the first time I saw this movie, except to say that I know for a fact it would have been like on a Sunday movie on the WB or whatever picks, you know, 11 or whatever it was at that point in time. So it would have been a much more stripped down version. All right. You know, we're not getting the full R rated total recall. You're getting like the little, like, you know, Sunday afternoon PG version where they've, you know, um, overdubbed Arnold's voice in spots mm. where he's cursing or um, stripped out sections of the movie where they might have, you know, anything that's like way too violent, things like that. And it's funny, I, I almost wish I could dig up that version of the movie because I'm probably almost more familiar with that version of the movie than like the actual version of the movie at this point. And again, I've watched it multiple times since, but I think that's the one where like they would play that and play that and play that over the course of years. And I'm like, every time it was on, I would stick that on. So I, I'm having a moment of recall for this movie. There you go. <laughs> and uh, I... I think I remember when we first saw this, my parents rented it on VHS and we, I, I was, I don't know if they realized that it was R rated or maybe <laughs> I, maybe I picked it out. Um, and I remember watching it with my parents. I do remember that. And every time there was an adult scene or something that was like ultra grotesque or graphic, they'd be like, cover your eyes, leave the room, whatever. <laughs> I'd, sta I, I'd stand in a doorway and kind of like peek through the crack of the door and with my fingers <laughs> over my eyes and whatever. But I, I, I definitely saw this on VHS with my parents because I don't think they realized what kind of a movie they were renting when they first got it. 
That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you and your parents. My parents were definitely like, or at least I, I should really relate this back to my mom, I think, because I think she was definitely the ultimate guardian at the end of the day for what sort of content I was watching, particularly around seven and a half years old. I know this one would not have made it into my house. I know she was definitely very big on, you know, making sure and checking ratings and <laughs> all that sort of stuff. A pretty good stopgap before I would have seen something like that. So that's definitely why my first entry came in that more tame version that would have been um, edited down for TV. Yeah, I, I definitely think my parents had my mom was pretty good. But every once in a while, something would slip through the cracks and they'd like miss the mark. And then they'd be like, oh, uh, leave the room. Go, 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 go to your room. Go. <laughs> get out of here. Like, nice. Oh, okay. You can come back in. Now. Did okay, you ever cool. get the hard stop? Like, we're turning this off. This is this is not appropriate. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to say there was there's definitely been one. I can't think of what movie it was off the top of my head, but there was definitely one or two in the time period where they're like, yeah, uh, this is over. Like, good night. And- <laughs> <laughs> I had one I remember later on I, I want to say I was maybe 13-ish at the time and I don't remember when the movie is from um, and it might have been from around the same time I, I don't really recall you ever see the movie Tin Soldiers? I've heard of it yeah I, I, it, I couldn't tell you terribly much about it I couldn't tell you who was in it anymore things like that I could probably sum up a little bit of the plot for you um, but I had gotten it in my I think a cousin of mine showed it to me and I really liked it and I got it in my head that I was going to like play it for my mom. And I had totally forgot that I had like a real like raunchy scene at one point. <laughs> and so I like in horror midway through the movie realized that this scene is coming up. And so I'm like, oh, I have to go upstairs now. And I started like creeping away and I just hear her Peter! <laughs> like yelling <laughs> when it hit the part that it hit and i was like oh boy i'm in it now <laughs> oh boy here we go <laughs> yes but that was that was the fu- that's the funny thing though when we were kids like you had one family tv you had one vcr in the house and like Definitely. whatever you know whatever you were watching the whole family was watching or the kids were going to bed basically was the breakdown like you know People didn't have TVs in their bedrooms all that much. I remember my parents had a small little 13-inch television, and I had oh, yeah. their their hand-me-down uh, rabbit ears black and white TV. In, <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> in my bedroom, and then we had you know our family room TV that was my maybe like a 20-inch monitor or 20-inch you know CRT, and it had the old-school VCR that popped up from the top. Yes. And, yep. Top and uh, yeah, the top loader. And I used to put my <laughs> action figures in there. Is it like? Oh no! So this is a good story. So I used to take. Cause I'm a big Batman fan, and I would when I'd play Batman, like I would put the bat suit in there, and I had the Michael Keaton action figure, and it was like, oh, when it's time to go into action, I'd hit eject, and the bat suit would pop up, and it would swap. <laughs> I'd swap out the actual Michael Keaton character for the Batman figure, and then I hold him and put him in the Batmobile and drive off. There was many a times my mother would try to jam in a cassette tape, and there was oh, no. <laughs> one or more Batman costumes in the. <laughs> Oh, no, that's not good. Yeah, I think a lot of top loaders um, met their fate from from kids thinking that that was a play thing. I I can remember um, other friends that had that exact same thing happen to them. (laughs) So, oh, boy. All right. Well, so uh, since I remember Total Recall, maybe slightly better than yourself. And again, like in fairness, I haven't seen it in a minute and you and I will officially rewatch it for the official review here. Um, Why don't you tell me what you do um, remember from it? Because I'm curious if you can remember 
some of the plot, some of the characters, what, what stuck out uh, from it for you? Okay. So I do remember a good chunk of the movie. I mean, I, I don't, I don't remember any of the characters' names. I'll be honest with you. I don't remember any of their names. Uh, I do remember that uh, Sharon Stone played his uh, initial wife in the movie. Yep. And um, so basically, he's kind of a guy who feels like he's just bored with his life. And, uh, you know, there's this company called Recall where it kind of can, you can pay money to go have your memories implanted or some sort of like journey where you could choose what you want to do is like your adventure and you're you basically have it in this vr seat type of thing and you have these memories in your head and you come out of it and you were a astronaut you were a movie star you were a spy or whatever and he goes to this recall place and he chooses spy i believe and um so they go and put him in the machine and he starts almost having a seizure or something like that in it. And then when he comes out of it, they're like, we haven't even started the thing. And it initiated the recall of apparently a real previous life that he had. And his mind had been wiped or blocked of memories of whatever he was before. And then things start to unravel. He goes home and he sees Sharon stone and like, they get into some sort of all out fight where they're beating the heck out of each other in their apartment and trying to kill each other. And uh, then he realizes he learns that she's not his real wife. It's a plant. It's kind of there to watch him and make sure he doesn't do anything foolish. Um, it gets a little muddy for me after this for a little bit. <laughs> for, 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 for some reason, he realizes he has to go to Mars. For some, for some reason, he has to go to Mars. And uh, Sharon Stone and this other organization is trying to hunt him down because he knows too much about something. Then he has to put like a, like a wet towel on his head wrapped like a turban <laughs> so they, they, they can't like read his mind or read his thoughts. And then... He gets a video of himself from the future recording to tell him, hey, insert this like projectile node thing up his nose to pull out some sort of tracking device from his brain. And he jams the thing up his nose and he does his, his Arnold as he's pulling, <laughs> pu- 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 pulling the, the thing out of his head. Um, he, he gets to Mars or whatever. He's wearing some sort of weird body costume where it's like a woman's head, but it's bald. He, he like unfolds off of his body. He lifts it up and it's a bomb and he throws it at people and blows them up. Uh, then he has this other girl who's this love interest in the movie. And he finds out is actually his, his real love interest in, in real life or whatever his life was before. And again, it gets a little bit muddy. Yada, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Some reason they actually, they're like, uh, they have to suck the oxygen out of the the sphere wherever they are on Mars, and and try to kill a bunch of people. I, I remember their eyes kind of bugging out of their heads, and then all of a sudden now they can breathe oxygen on Mars outside of whatever you know v- city they they're in, and that's about all I got. Bravo, sir. My goodness. Yeah. So for somebody who's saying they only you know recall seeing it maybe a couple times, that's actually pretty close to. Uh... To what my uh, recollection of the plot pretty much goes as well, yeah. 
Um, yeah, no. So again, like same thing. And, you know, not to rehash most of what you said, but yeah. Right. So he's a, a construction worker. His name is Doug Quaid. Right. And, uh, he lives on earth and, uh, there is, um, a, uh, place called recall that you can go to and, and implant. Essentially they treat it like a virtual vacation. Right. Yes, yeah. And you're, like, kind of like what you were saying, like they, that if you're kind of bored with your life, you can get the memories of somebody who's like cooler or richer or, you know, more, um, interesting than yourself planted in and uh, kind of treat that as like a little vacation, essentially away from um, your daily kind of grind. And, you know, he's, he's a construction worker on earth. Um, yeah. So he, he goes to recall and he gets his, uh, his memory implanted. And as you say, something kind of goes wrong. Now, this is, this is where um, I think people kind of um, have debated this movie for a long time, right? because uh, you can kind of go either way. You know, there's, there's sort of two takeaways at the end of this, uh, movie, which is that either he did in fact get the implant and everything that happens post that point is in fact um, all memories that are given to him by recall and that presumably after the credits roll, he returns to his normal everyday life with Sharon Stone and as a construction worker. Or the kind of alternate take is that the um, process does um, essentially uh, fix his memory that he had had his memory wiped of his previous life as an actual spy for that um, kind of shadowy uh, corporation, which I can't remember the name of either um, that was operating out of Mars. So I don't know. Do you have a hot take on that? Uh, Do you feel one way strongly about it or the other? Uh, So here's the thing about this movie that always bothered me is that whole aspect of it is so vague that it's, (laughs) it's too hard to go one way or the other. I kind of think that, what happened really happened or as opposed to it being in his head i would have liked to have seen glimmers of things if it was in his head and it's all made up in his mind there should be some sort of fragments or glimmers that show that it's actually not real and to to be at the end of the movie the way it ends where he's standing with the other woman on top of mars looking out into whatever it it makes you assume that that really happened but I also wonder, like, did he have a brain aneurysm and die? And he's just, this is all, you know. <laughs> so the question just, is just for our for our sakes. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't this a book before it was a movie. It was. Yes. And I can actually talk quasi intelligently about that to you. So um, it's a Philip K. Dick book. Um, Sounds about right. Same. Yeah. Same author as Blade Runner and some other um, things. Uh, my Standard understanding Darkly, is this. Right? Exactly. It's it's loosely based on on a short story of his. Um, I, I don't 100 percent remember the name of it. I could probably look it up. Um, but essentially in that one, um, the story that you get is that it's the way that you're leaning and it's the way I've always leaned with this movie, which is, in fact, that when they start the process, um, it actually does uncover his old memories and not plant new memories. So it is, in fact, that he was a spy plant um, that was left on Earth. Um, for a while and everything that kind of then happens there after that is in fact happening in reality. Um, I'm pretty sure that's how the short story goes. That one's very much more clear about that being the case. They didn't um, do the same thing as they did in the movie with it being more ambiguous. Um, and it's funny because I can remember growing up that I had friends that felt very strongly one way or the other. I was definitely always over on what I I guess in my mind mentally feels like the optimistic um, version of it, which is that everything that did happen in fact did happen that he didn't end up getting 
the uh, implanted memories that it just woke in him the Carl Hauser, which was his um, alternate uh, personality, his previous personalities um, memories, but that his he got this kind of combination between the two, and that's what kind of creates Quaid or the the new Arnold who's doing the good thing instead of being the bad guy, essentially. So I looked up the the Philip K. Dick uh, short story, and it's called. We can remember it for you wholesale. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> it, that sounds like a Philip K. Dick kind of a name. Absolutely. Of a <laughs> Yet another one of these ones where he has like, um, do androids dream of electric sheep somehow becoming, you know, <laughs> yeah, Blade, Blade Runner, Runner, you know, yeah. when it hits movie theaters. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of his titles kind of um, get switched around uh, when they mm-hmm. end up somewhere else. I do think the name total recall is a, a cool name for a movie though. Like it really is an interesting name and it was clever. Oh, it is. And I love the recall jingle, um, mm-hmm. which uh, I think Jerry Goldsmith um, did all the music for total recall. Um, and he then by proxy did this little jingle for it, like the recall, recall, recall. <laughs> like, and it's longer than that. I remember there's like, it's, there's more to it than that, but I always remember that part very, uh, very clearly. All right, so let's see if I can can pick up some of the threads. So, um, as you say, he uh, he does end up with that kit, and he ends up with that uh, little like video suitcase, which I thought at the time back in the '90s was like a really cool thing that you could have this like video projector player in a suitcase, and he's got that extractor that pulls the uh, I think it was a tracking device um, mm-hmm. out of his head, so the people um, can kind of uh, stop chasing him. And I know Sharon Stone is is on that and i also um what's his name uh michael ironside um plays a guy named richter he was always the bad guy and everything like he was just typecast as the bad guy everything (laughs) in the 80s and 90s yeah so the two of them kind of spend most of the movie sort of um chasing him down obviously until um sharon stone kind of meets a uh a grisly ending (laughs) uh when he kind of shoots her in the face as i recall (laughs) it's so again, I don't know how how intensely they showed that in the original um, Pix Eleven version, but I can remember in the uh, the finished uh, R-rated movie that she has like a big old hole in her head. Um, I thought it was the girl that killed her. I think he shoots her because then he has one of these great one-liners after like uh, she's she's like begging him like don't kill me and he's like he shoots her and he's like consider that our divorce, <laughs> which you know like all the Arnold Schwarzenegger one-liners in this are amazing. Yeah. Um, and we're going to circle back on that. Um, but uh, yeah, he ends up uh, getting his ass to Mars, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he hooks up with this underground resistance. Now, one of the things I, I, I know is in one of your more muddy sections um, is he, he connects with that girl, Melina, who becomes the other sort of love interest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he also hooks up with um, Quado. Now, do you remember Quado at all? No. Uh, uh, all I remember is the robotic, cab driver johnny cab where he rips yes this, johnny cab <laughs> where he rips it out of the car and he and he starts driving the car manually that's about all i got there's a know. special special place in my heart for johnny cab me and mm-hmm. one of my um, good friends growing up always joked about um johnny cab um but uh yes so the, he catches the johnny cab around mars for sure but when he finally does get let in with the uh the kind of underground movement who is sort of the um, antithesis to like the uh, mega corporation that's trying to control all the air. That's like one of the big things is that they're trying to control all the air on Mars and, and um, you know, make a, a big profit off of that. And uh, uh, I forget the ultimate villain's name. Uh, unfortunately, I know he's kind of like um, trying to stop them. And he was like a, a friend to uh, the Carl Hauser version of 
of Quaid, but uh, Quato is that guy um, where they take him in and he's supposedly like this like psychic leader of the resistance. And he, he, they bring him to this guy and he thinks he's meeting the guy. And then like the guy like unbuttons his shirt and there's like this like creepy little growth <laughs> off the guy's midsection is this ringing a bell for you no we got nothing no oh yeah i mean he's creepy yeah so he, he's he's like this like little like because a lot of the the people that are um, living on mars are like mutated and i don't really mm-hmm. remember why i'll have to try and remember why that was um from the movie but like you know there's like that famous lady with the three boobs that he mm-hmm. runs into um and then uh he runs into to quato who's like a um a psychic or something but he's not the guy who's walking around. He's like this like growth, like a big like tumor off the front of this guy who's like essentially like a puppet. Um, and, <laughs> and he talks to him um, and he's like, you, you know, you have to start the reactors, Quaid. There's these hidden reactors inside Mars. And if only you can restart these reactors, then, you know, like it'll save everybody. And uh, and to your point, kind of what you're saying, yeah, the, the corporation ends up... Um, shutting off uh the air in like sectors of like the uh the mars base um in an effort to like kill quato and the revolutionaries um and hopefully quaid with them but um quaid gets into this like ancient alien underground bunker that they've been keeping secret and uh it has like these big fuel rods sort of things and then there's some really cool like final fights like he has this like really cool final fight with um richter and he had this um, really neat watch. I remember. I think it was a watch where he could make like a double of himself. Um, so you, they were like using that as like a trick to like defeat the bad guys. And I don't remember how he got that or why he got that. But mm. he finally like puts his hand on like the alien shaped hand, and it starts this big reaction, and it goes down into like the core of Mars and like releases all this ice that's in the planet, and that like shoots up into the sky and like as you're saying like their eyes were bulging out of their head that's at that final final end part because they get like ejected out into the vacuum of mars and so the vacuum is like sucking their eyes and of course that's when you're saying it's like that like you know like very like over the top again i don't i I don't know what they did to do that if it was just like another puppet or if it feels like it feels like um, claymation of some sort i from what i yeah or like prosthetics weird prosthetics or something they did with them with something like claymation i'm not really sure be interesting to go back and and take a look at that but uh yeah they're just about to like die him and and her and then like the reaction finishes and like the atmosphere just fills in and mars goes from being like a red planet to like a blue planet like earth and the evil corporation is defeated and they're victorious and as you say it's like they're standing on that like um, like overlook at the end, looking at the blue sky, um, trying to figure out if it's all been a dream or not, right? Yeah, so, so that is is total recall. <laughs> so here's a funny thing. So I was just googling and IMDBing this, and this Quado character and George is his you know human body uh, puppet or whatever. From what you described it, it feels like uh, Men in Black totally stole this character for one of those characters that is in the first men in black movie where it's got like a little character with a side head and whatever. That's right. Yeah. I've forgotten about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of things um, that came from total recall that could probably then be attributed to other things down the road. And I could be totally spitballing this, but like just even like the plant of the wife uh, reminds me so much of Truman show. You know what I mean? Like, especially when she finally kind of like starts, like he starts realizing it's all sham. And then she kind of has to try and like turn things around very quickly. 
um, and and then kind of just goes to just dropping the pretense altogether. It feels very much to me um, like that. And uh, I remember a few years back, um, what's that uh, YouTube channel? Um, oh, uh, Honest Trailers. Uh, yes. I, I saw a few years ago the Honest Trailers um, for Total Recall, and they were kind of um, playing at the end of that, that like the end of Total Recall was as if it was taken from Spaceballs, where like, you know, they flipped the uh, the uh, super um, cleaning thing in reverse and it starts spitting all the air in the trees back down to the planet. And it's almost kind of like that same um, reaction happening at the end, which I thought was a very kind of funny um, pull, even though it's kind of the opposite direction for us here. Yeah, no, that's interesting though. It's funny you mentioned that. It was kind of I, I used to be a big honest trailers guy. I love watching their their takes on movies and how they explain it. Yeah, them. So you can definitely is, kill a few hours. With, oh yeah, <laughs> with that channel. You get into a YouTube vortex and just sitting there watching that stuff all day long. I've done that many times. So I thought I had a little bit of a, a game that we could uh, maybe take a crack at, and we'll we'll see how well either or both of us do. I, I'm actually. I, I was thinking maybe I could stump you on it, but um, you, you recall a little bit more than I, I thought you were going to. So I don't know. Let's see how you do. So I thought maybe we'd have a little quote off because this is, again, this is a Schwarzenegger movie and there's nothing like a Schwarzenegger movie to have a bunch of those like goofy one liners. So oh, I, I, I thought maybe I'd, I'd like we do a little tennis back and forth here and see if we could uh, pull a few um, out of our head without cheating. Just see if which ones you might be able to. Um, to remember so do you want me to lead it off or you want to take a stab and see if i can't volley it back you lead it off because i don't know any of them that i can think of all right my now head. i think i think in fairness we have to do this in our, our best schwarzenegger um, impressions okay know? sure okay got your ass to mars oh, i don't know what uh <laughs> i don't know any of the responses or any any things he would say uh <laughs> I put you on the spot on this one, huh? I, I was I was curious because you had such a good uh, memory for like what so much of the movie was. I was curious if you could pull any of his one-liners yeah. out. I mean, I can. Oh no, I got nothing on this one. I mean, you asked me Commando or Kindergarten <laughs> Cop. Yeah, I, I got them all. I think it, we're gonna get to that. I think next month. I think you're gonna definitely have have that leg up over me on, oh, on Die Hard. I, I know you're Mister oh, Die Hard. <laughs> I got I got a lot of them for Die Hard. Oh, man. Yeah. How about um, your lady there? Um, you know, obviously you mentioned when he's in the costume, when he's trying to get through the uh, the security section, right? Uh, she oh. kind of starts coming apart. She kind of starts glitching. She's doing her. Oh, they ask her, how long are you staying on Mars? And she's two weeks, two weeks, mm. right? And, and then, as you say, he throws the head, which is like, in fact, like a bomb, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to remember now. What's the line? She's like... Um, you're going to have a good time or something like that. And then it like uh, explodes. I might be off on that. I might catch flack because I think I'm a little off on that one. Uh, well, you got the other um, Quaid, start the reactor. You know, like that's the uh, the Quado one, right? Yes. Big line from him. Uh, um, uh, if I'm not me, who am I? Right. That's another uh, Arnold that's, one. <laughs> that's a good that is that I've heard. Uh, yeah. But, I'm trying to think of some of the other really good ones from him in there. There's a oh. few, but they've got curses in them that I can think of. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, I'm you, sure you, the the tame one is the uh, the get your ass to Mars one, right? <laughs> you, you you did say one earlier. The consider that the divorce. Yes, yes, that's the uh, yep, yeah, that's another really good one. I think we failed our attempted game here. So hey, I have a backup game. All right, 
Okay. I, I thought maybe we just because you know this movie, as with a lot of other Schwarzenegger movies, is loaded with Schwarzenegger noises. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe we would each give our our best. Um, in you know, especially like when he gets like sucked out onto the planet's surface and things like that, or when he's struggling with people. Mm-hmm. You know the sound I'm thinking of. That's a good one. That's absolutely good. It's like a bear that's that's like constipated, trying to get a, you know pass a kidney stone as well. It's like yeah. I mean, I know all these action stars have their own things, but there's nothing thing like that let's let's see if i can grace you with a good one (laughs) that's terrible that was shit (laughs) oh my god okay so from here we have to um re-watch the big movie and we'll come back in a moment with our official review of total recall So, Pete, why don't you dive into all the box office information as well as uh, the greatest hits and who this production was done by and so on and so forth. So, according to Box Office Mojo, it grossed $89,754,110. It opened on June 1st, so it had that whole month to run. So that $90 million essentially um, did come from that time. It looks like it was put out in uh, 2,131 theaters, which is, you know, again, like pretty decent amount of theaters for that period of time. Um, I think, you know, normally even now, that's kind of a a roughly uh, similar or likewise sort of amount that you would see in most movies coming into. Um, It goes on to make 119,394,840 total uh, in the U.S. Uh, It does about that internationally as well. Um, for a total worldwide number of two hundred sixty-one million two hundred ninety-nine thousand eight hundred and forty, uh, and I ran that through an inflation calculator because I know people always like to talk about inflation when it comes to uh, movies of the past and how they might match up with movies of today. So, according to um, this U.S. inflationcalculator.com, which is taking into effect um, supposedly some of the numbers that are going to do that, the total today. Would be something like five hundred and twelve million five ninety one. So you know that basically kind of puts it on par with some of the movies that we were seeing released, um, kind of pre COVID. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. it's obviously not Avengers money, it's not Star Wars money, but that's a pretty decent haul um, for you know kind of like a uh, stereotypical action movie that I feel like we would normally see coming out around now. Yeah, but even like I mean, I think the first Iron Man was only a little over five hundred million. So I mean, that's that's kind of on par for, you know, not necessarily a franchise, you know, 22 movie deep project. This is, you know, a one-off thing with one lead character and everybody else was pretty much unknowns at the time, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's very, very on par um, with kind of what we see for other movies around that time. I mean, just to, again, put that in perspective, like you mentioned, Pretty Woman was a big, big, big movie in 1990. And it looks like the total um, gross on that one ended up being 178 million. Um, I believe that's uh, domestic and then uh, worldwide was 463. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that one did bigger money overall, um, but it, you know, also was uh, kind of out in theaters for a longer time. It was also a, a different type of movie. Like it's a much broader, wider audience for Pretty Woman than Total Recall, you know? So. Definitely. Yes. So what was the actual like 
estimated budget of the movie. I have a so, number in my head, but I wanted to just see what it actually says. Yeah, I mean, sources vary. Um, if you if you go over to something like Wikipedia, they're claiming in the fifty to sixty million range. I think Box Office Mojo has it at sixty five million. Um, what that kind of says is that at that point in time, it was definitely one of the most expensive movies that had been made up to that point, if not in that top sort of list. But you know, there's a lot of movies um, all told throughout time that that never completely give out what that final budget is. But you know, this one's obviously very effects heavy for the time it's definitely you know some you know fairly superior effects work at that point in time um so and, i'm and sure a lot, a lot of big paused. sets too like that a lot of big set work and yeah you know you know schwarzenegger's got to cost a hefty penny as well just to have him in the movie because again uh this was you know at the time you know sharon stone wasn't anybody at that time so no one knew who she was and he's he's the only big name in the movie everybody else is all you know b-list actors so to speak so you got to assume that that has to carry a toll and, you know, whatever the marketing and all that must have cost back then with billboards and commercials. Yeah, and so I mean, on you so know, forth. marketing is such a universal marketing always costs. And I'm sure it was the case exactly here, too. Again, it's hard to break that number down further. But as you say, between cast, between visual effects, um, you know, they've got a great original score by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, I think that went on to win uh, an award. Um, I know the movie itself uh, went on to win a visual effects award. Um, and, uh, you know, as you say, it's got, you know, quite a cast of people. It's got not only the um, computerized sort of effects, but they are producing a bunch of miniatures. Uh, mm-hmm. In addition to like the sets you mentioned, you know, they have a bunch of full scale sets that are, you know, obviously very intricate. They have a bunch of miniatures that they're creating to create a lot of these um, outside effects of Mars. Um, and then, you know, uh, this is also, I, I should circle back and mention, this is a movie directed by Paul Verhoeven, um, who we know from the likes of RoboCop from Starship Troopers. Um, so, you know, it, it definitely feels on par with his sort of work, but you know, it's definitely got a, a big, um, budget going into it to create essentially what you end up with there. Yeah. And I think probably, you know, looking back on it as we do through this, uh, more modern prism, you know, some of the graphics don't hold up as well. Some of the effects don't hold up as well, but a lot of it is I, done I have some comments about that. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I mean, a lot of it's done practically. And, you know, that costs like practical back then and practical now still costs. So I, I think mm-hmm. that definitely went into it. So that's uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I kind of figured it was going to be around 50 to 60 million. That just was the number that popped in my head when I felt like watching the movie and and or rewatching it so to speak it's just that was the number that stuck out i was like i bet your schwarzenegger cost about five million the movie probably cost about 25 to 30 million and then the marketing and whatever was the remaining you know 10 million or yeah. so uh, yeah i mean i feel like marketing can always be in that zone where it's taking up you know easily half to yeah. like a third of the uh the budget no problem exactly so do you want to dive into this review here? I got a lot to say. I took a lot of notes. Yes, yeah, no, like lead me off. Yeah, Mike was very diligent in going back and watching this one over. He took a bunch of notes. I'm excited to uh, to hear them, and I'll I'll definitely jump in here and there with um, some of my thoughts as well. So the first thing I have to say, and this is very very important for anybody who grew up in the late '80s, early '90s, and is a, a child of the '90s like us or '80s. The voice of Harvey Bullock is in this movie. He has a small part, but he but you heard his voice. It's like, oh my goodness, it's Harvey Bullock. So from no Batman the Animated, yeah. So the guy in the in the construction site 
who's the other jackhammer guy and he's like this head of like this little gang that tries to take Schwarzenegger down that's the voice of Harvey Bullock and I was like, whoa, oh, that's a really interesting fact. I didn't know that. <laughs> that's fantastic. So that made me really happy. And it like it looks like him, but in real life. So this was pretty funny. So that it's I also to- funny having rewatched that, too, and seeing that, you know, we were talking previously about the fact that it, it, this kind of has things that harken out to other things that I had mentioned Truman show. And that, again, you know, I, I kind of have forgot about that character is basically almost exactly like the same character that's Truman's friend in Truman show that he kind of comes in and he's like, Oh, those, those brain scramblers, you don't want to mess with them. Mm-hmm. You know? And then in that same vein, like when the, the, you know, jig is up, he's kind of coming after him right off the bat. Yeah. That, that was kind of a funny um, character that I'd sort of forgotten about. So uh, the one thing I have to say is for the most part, the cinematography wasn't something that was like setting the world on fire. It was pretty, standard cookie cutter format for camera angles and 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 style of shooting and and quick cutting for fights and and such that so i wasn't really blown away by the by the cinematography i do i did think the score worked really well with the movie and helped move the story along a lot but the but the actual camera work i was like eh, it's it's pretty basic at the time so, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, as we, you know, Jerry Goldsmith is Jerry Goldsmith, and you know, the stuff he produces is always great. It's definitely got very catchy um, main theme, definitely catchy other portions of the song that, like, as soon as you start watching it, it comes back in your head. You're like, oh god, this was a great piece of music for sure. But uh, I mean, to your point, yeah, I, I think it's as you say, there there was kind of this like look to a lot of '90s movies where you know, I mean, certainly now and as time has gone by, and so much more of this filmmaking has become a more technologically advanced, but, you know, even more approachable to people that um, weren't doing it at the time. Um, It's definitely gotten, I think, to a fancier sort of level, you know, with kind of how we see these things. And again, it it goes back to what we were mentioning with um, the visual styles of Total Recall 2012. Um, They certainly went for a lot of very, you know, high end visuals as far as the cinematography. But as you say, you know, it's kind of, I think, what I would call almost like the 90s look, you know, there were so many movies that that kind of fit this like, you know, sort of like standard cookie cutter of shots. I mean, that said, they did have some very clever um, camera work with how it um, played in with their visual effects. You know, mm, um, I yeah. I was trying to kind of really pay attention to that again on the back end and sort of how um, I noticed that they have a lot of plates where they'll have um, Arnold um, playing off of, um, for example, like, you know, he's chatting with his wife in the beginning of the movie and they've got like the video walls behind them. And it looks pretty darn good, you it know, does, for, does look for pretty what good. it was at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they kind of do that then throughout the rest of the movie, you know, like when he's um, on Mars and he's transferring um, in the train and he's chatting with the other guy there about the uh, the Mars pyramid that they were mining before they found the supposed alien technology, you know, same sort of thing. They're kind of like they've got it stocked with him against a uh, window and we're kind of seeing Mars flying by in the background. And I think, you know, I, I tried to go see if I could find how some of these visuals were done um, after the fact. And I think a lot of them are, are probably, you know, things like that, that you could guess at, but basically, yeah, they had like, you know, a video screen behind that and they were kind of allowing the thing to play um, against that. And I think they kind of have a good um, mix of how they're handling that, you know, tied in with the cinematography. So if I can give them any kind of bonus points in that area, it's that they definitely were thinking out how they wanted to get some of these shots to look and work to make, you know, the effects, especially at that time, really work for them where they aren't going to be, you know, completely just CGing everything as you see done in, you know, more more modern movies. Right, exactly. So here's a couple of little points that I had to uh, call out here. So the movie is set in 
an unknown distant future from now. We don't know really what year it is, but I mo- think it's like late tw- like 2000s. I think it's like I, I think I had seen it somewhere in one of the, <laughs> the things I read that it's supposed to be like roughly like 2080s or something like that. So a lot of the technology is not very futuristic in the sense that like they're on a construction site and they're using jackhammers. <laughs> I was like, okay. I'm so glad you, I'm really glad you brought this point up. I've got some points for it too. So it's like, okay, you got 40 guys using jackhammers and it's, <laughs> let, let, let's call it 20, uh, 2080, right? They wouldn't sure. have figured out a better way to, break down rock than 40 guys with jackhammers like they're on a you know no, totally <laughs> that I, was a little you know strange what? I, I don't know if you noticed because there was a few things that i found to be such exact products of the time it was in um i don't know if you noticed this because it was on screen for like a hot moment but the tracker that they were using to track him down from the implant in his head was made from casio did oh yeah catch that i did yeah, i, I saw thought that, that was really funny i like i mean it's like you know it's the type of thing that you wouldn't think about when you're watching it originally because it's like oh yeah i've got my casio watch on it's 1990 you know whatever but like going back and seeing that i was like oh my god that's a brand that was so ingrained in our lives at that time and the, the fact that like they would be not only making casio watches but in the future apparently casio like brain tracking device tracking technology I, that was very funny to me i thought that was really great that was pretty funny. Also, like, I, I don't know who their costume designer was, but none of the clothes felt futuristic at all. Um, <laughs> Definitely a very 90s look. Very I, mean, 90s. Like, I think they tried to throw like a l- slight futuristic spin on some of those, but very much like that kind of like loose, you know, open button down shirts and yeah. things like that that were definitely at home in the 90s. The, the only person who i felt had the most futuristic looking costumes was uh sharon stone her clothing felt like somewhat of the time but also somewhat a little bit futuristic at the same time but not really but everybody else was pretty much like this is a 90s thing like he he had like the same green and and green jacket with the brown collar that i had in the 90s throughout the, <laughs> half the movie and i was like i have that same coat back then i thought that was pretty funny so no, it's definitely true so here's the thing that i thought was kind of interesting so most of the of the monitors are all crt monitors which yes. because because in in real life led or lcd or any kind of you know high definition monitors did not exist and there was not even a thought in 1989 when this was filmed or 1988 even when it was possibly filmed there was not even a glimmer in the in the possibility of a flat screen with high definition didn't even exist so <laughs> yeah, i mean i think they've got a couple exceptions and they're minor you know like uh the screen that he uh, gets out of like the laptop where he can you know he's first telling himself yeah about you know the background that one is like definitely a bit smaller and i'm curious if that's like a true screen that they had or you know i'm honestly not sure how they might have been putting that in at that point because it seems like you said you know like obviously you and i had like crt tvs through like even the early probably 2000 era um so you know they're not very into the flat panel thing and they're not really trying to fake that out as some other movies Mm -hmm. you know throughout time have done in in kind of interesting ways so much but like there's that and then they kind of have like their um video intercoms if you will that they kind of contact each other on those were also kind of it seemed like more interesting shapes you know what i mean like they kind of had like that like you know cell phone-esque sort of vertical screen which is you know i don't feel like a lot of people were doing that in any kind of capacity at that point so it's kind of fun where they they sort of added little elements like that but you're right it's it's very much 
Um, you know, any one of these movies that you go back and look on now, you start cracking up about the fact that they have these big, big monitors and, yeah. you know, like all, you know, that's nothing in the vein of what we even have now or what we're heading towards with some of these more flat, um, tiny panels and things like that, that people will be easily carrying around with themselves. Right. Exactly. Now, here's a funny thing. So Johnny Cab is an android, <laughs> right? Why yes. wouldn't it be an AI as opposed to a robot? It doesn't make yeah, it no, I, I love Johnny Cab and it's so perfect to talk about in, in light of this sort of thing that like we are at the verge of self-driving cars being a thing. You know, you have all these people out in, I think Google's working on them. I think um, uh, Tesla is working on them. I think there's a few other companies that are working on them and, you know, a driverless car is a driverless car. There's no, <laughs> right. there's no kind of approximation of that. You know, you'd almost think you'd see something more in the vein of kind of the Knight Rider. And I know you're a big Knight Rider guy, but like the kit mm-hmm. sort of thing where you just have this right. like disembodied voice chatting with you. Uh, you know, the only thing I can go back on that is like, I think people throughout time always seek to humanize these sorts of things. Like even mm-hmm. when we think about AIs, like if we've seen AIs in movies, it's never like just like some weird random like shape that we're not used to. It's always like a humanoid, you know, if not like human, you know, flipping out like, you know, the face of like a person onto an AI or something like that. So I I get how that sort of thing finds its way into this movie. I mean, the funny part is you would think, especially given the size of those Johnny Kebs, they're kind of funny little things. You're talking about them, you know, they're apparently there on Earth as much as they are on Mars, which I kind of forgot. I think I just had remembered them on the Mars end of things. But they definitely have also like that chase scene on on Earth where Great they're nerd, yeah. um, chasing down the Johnny Cab as well. But um, you know, it almost seems like a waste of space. <laughs> you know, like if you're trying to get passengers into your cabin as a tiny little cab, it's almost like he's taking up uh, too much room. And you know what's weird about it is, if it's a robotic driving car, why does it have a joystick? Why? Does I, it yeah, it? it has like that backup joystick, and it's a great question. It's like. Does that exist purely just because we know that Arnold's going to be ripping this poor bugger out and throwing him in the back yeah. seat and then having to drive it manually? Or is it like an override? I, I, yeah, it's, it's very funny. And as you say, like if you're thinking about, you know, how technology is progressing, like does that joystick exist in that form? And like, really, how do you even drive <laughs> with a joystick? I guess it's like you push it forward and then you can just kind of do like left and right. I mean, I know like in the earth chase scene, there's no throttle. There's no. There's no pedals. Where, you know? he, yeah, I mean, like he, you know, he's he's spinning it like literally, like in a circle. You know what I mean? So it's it must have some kind of like total. Like if you're jamming that thing far to the left or the right, it's just spinning on axis. It's not even like a modern car where it's like you know turning left or right as you would expect. It kind of is able to just sort of spin in place. So it's yeah, definitely a, a weird little um, car that I kind of appreciate now, even even more thinking back about it. And poor little uh, Johnny Cab burning in the back seat. Oh. Actually, you know what's an interesting thing that I don't think I noticed before about that is that um, he kind of has this really weird moment where he kind of goes like haywire and starts like screaming and the car sort of takes off, but he's not attached to anything anymore. So I, I was really curious what happened in that moment. Like, you know, he's not I, hooked to I, the car. So like what made him, because it's like in that order, the car, he starts screaming and then the car takes off. It's not like the car takes off and he's like, I don't know. It was very weird. I almost was like, are they remote controlling it as the agency? Well, that's what I thought. Too. It or... <laughs> yeah, it's very so, bizarre. But then what would he know about that? You know, it's so strange. <laughs> so it, it's it's I think it's an editing mistake because I think probably originally that the agency might have been controlling it and they overrode the car to try to like 
kill Quaid, but I think they just cut that part out of it to establish that for time because yeah. one, one second later, the guy with the Casio is like, oh, there was an explosion of a, of a Johnny Cab over by the, you know, the the dumps or whatever. And I was like, I think there was an editing mistake there that like they left that scene in because they needed that explosion, but the dialogue doesn't match up. It doesn't make sense. So I thought that was kind of, you know, what's funny about you reminding me with that, the, the explosion too. That's another thought I had while watching back through it, that that initial scene where he kind of gets kidnapped um, by his coworker and the gang of guys. And they end up having this, you know, knockdown drag out fight and shootout in some cases. And I love it because it pans up at the end. And there's like a roadway above them with people just kind of like carrying on about their business. Mm-hmm. And I know they talk about how like on Mars kind of violence is expected. They know that the resistance is happening there, that there's a lot of like, you know, it, like essentially they're, they're portraying it in the TV news as like a big terrorist kind of battle with them and the agency going back and forth. But uh, no one was blinking an eye at like this very loud, violent, you know, and I realize they're off in like a little nook or something, but they pulled him out of a pretty busy, crowded area. So it was, it was kind of funny. People were kind of like very nonchalant about some apparent like gun shootout that was happening just below them. Yeah. All right. So my next observation is one that I think is very interesting and it could be an entire podcast in itself is the fact that so Sharon Stone in the movie is assigned to be Quaid's wife slash you know babysitter so to speak right but she's also richter's love interest and after not just love interest wife <laughs> right exactly yeah <laughs> so so he, here's the strange part about it so richter has no problem sending his wife to be with Arnold Schwarzenegger for six weeks at least, if not longer, <laughs> and do whatever married couples would do. Um, but when one of his goons comes over and is like, makes a pass at her, he throws the guy like he's ready to rip his head off. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense in that character. <laughs> like, Well, so I think, you know, the thing with Richter is it's kind of an interesting character arc for a villain like this because he's really quite unhinged most of the movie, you know? So like, as you're saying, you know, basically the big boss says to him, like, all right, set your wife up, you know, with um, Quaid. And he, I guess just for, you know, no other reason, I guess, than that goes along with it. And, uh, you know, obviously she, by her kind of accounting, doesn't seem to be so put out by it, but um, it is very weird. But I mean, you know, he's got several other scenes where, you know, he kind of, flies off the handle like you know the this scene where he shows up and is asking where quaid is once they've gone through the little secret door and then everybody's kind of turning him down he like just starts gunning people down yeah. and having all his people go so i mean he's definitely a little bit you know nuts <laughs> yeah a little bit yeah so I, I just thought that was kind of a weird thing i was like okay he's okay with this but he's not okay I, it just didn't it didn't make make sense to me yeah I, I mean i think the way they try and play it off is it seems like she herself then is also one of these agents you know yeah. what i mean and it also they kind of make you know statements that kind of lead you to believe that she's done other assignments like this before so yeah i, I don't so, know but i do know the point you're talking about when he's just like, what are you saying? She liked it, you know, and just goes, goes and, bananas. And to piggyback on that, of all of the goons and thugs and this and that that are in this movie, Sharon Stone's character is the only one that can fight. 
like she has several fight sequences with Schwarzenegger, with Molina, with Schwarzenegger again. And she's the only one that seems to know any kind of like martial arts skills or any kind of like fighting combinations and stuff like that. Nobody else knows how to fight in this whole movie other than her. And I was like, she's their best asset. Like, I, <laughs> you know, it just, yeah, no, so- she definitely, st- you know, holds her grounds a lot more. You know, uh, one of the other things, in addition to rewatching the movies, I tried to see if I could find a few behind the scenes things. Um, to try and answer some of the questions we sort of had um, as we were going along in our initial um, trying to recall, right, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the things that they were talking about was actually that she um, was doing a ton of stunt training, Sharon Stone, for that part, and that um, she was very insistent on doing quite a lot of that herself. So actually, most of the time you're seeing her it's um, her. Those fight scenes, it really is her. Yeah, which is, you know, it's very impressive because mm. I, I feel like as more time has gone on, a lot more female leads have taken that sort of step and done that same sort of um, thing. But mm. yeah, you know, uh, that was big at that point, you know, and uh, they, in this like, you know, behind the scenes things like Arnold's very um, excited and into that. The fact that she's, you know, willing to participate, you know, along with everybody else. So, you know, uh, all credit to her. Yeah, no, she she was honestly to me the best part of the whole movie. Uh, you know, Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger, you know what you're going to get, but like for her, if you look at it, if you envision it, like this is an early role for her before Basic Instinct, before anything else. She really crushed it on this movie, and I was like, wow, she really was probably one of the highlights of the movie for me personally. Uh, her acting was on point. Her everything was great. Her characterization, even just like the way she tries to like manipulate him and make him believe that he's still in a dream at the at, when they're on Mars, like that whole thing was really fantastic. I thought she really sold it for me big time. Definitely, and she certainly goes. I mean, you, you can tell in the beginning that something's you know maybe slightly off. And again, this is under the impetus that you're believing that everything that's happening in this movie is happening, and that mm-hmm. she doesn't just have this you know, total change in personality because of the, the implanted memories. Um, but, you know, she's kind of like fighting him against the idea of going to Mars. And it's for a lot of like practical reasons, you know, like, yeah. oh, there's a whole revolution going on there and everything like that. Um, but, you know, she definitely turns heel very well, too. You know, she kind of goes from like, you know, this, you know, more sweet sort of wife role to like, you know, all right, I'm a kick ass agent of this, you know, yeah. agency here on Mars. So, yeah, no, it's definitely uh, she did a really good job with it. So my next. It's let's call it an observation, right? So one of the coolest things I remember from this movie back when I saw it was in as a kid was the x-ray screening walkthrough thing when when like you'd walk through it there's a bunch of guards standing there watching each person to see if they have any firearms or whatever and at the time in the early 90s i was like wow that looked really cool Rewatching it today i it, it, it harkened back to that like cheesy commercial about the skeleton that, that was airing for a while <laughs> uh, uh it was it was f- fine i mean visually for that time period the effects were great but the best part about it is the when schwarzenegger dives through the glass and the way the glass breaks like that was such a cool look it was one of the most stylistic things i in the entire movie and i thought that was really really neat no it's true and i'm actually really happy you brought this up because this is another one of the things that i came across when i was looking into the background of some of this stuff and it's actually a really fascinating story of how that particular scene came to be. Because again, you and I were talking already that there's a lot, a lot, a lot of practical effects in this movie. And this is one of the true, like pure CGI sort of areas of the movie that they had to do at that time. And again, you know, we're in this little zone where we're starting to come towards 
the Jurassic parks of the world and things mm -hmm. like that. When, you know, some of that starts getting really good and still holds up today. And then you still have stuff from like the eighties that, you know, does not hold up today. And this is kind of in that zone in between those that, as you say, it probably was like amazing at the time. And I'm actually still pretty impressed by how they did that, you know, just purely from a watching perspective. And now from the back end of um, hearing them talk about how they did it is also pretty impressive um, because they had very funny circumstances. So essentially um, they initially started trying to do this scene with mocap and you can kind of knock me over because I, I think, you know, mocap in some ways has existed for a long, long time, long now. time. Um, but you know, the more modern mocap that we're seeing, you know, in movies like the Avengers or things like that now, um, where they've got like, you know, the pr particular body suits with all the little balls and they've got, you know, cameras all around the room that's tracking them in real time and things like that. You know, it wasn't to that point then, but it was kind of like close to how they were sort of doing even the effects for the lightsabers in Star Wars, where they had um, balls attached to them and these sort of like very reflective material that would bounce off. And they could kind of film that and try and, you know, match up where those reflective balls are. So anyway, they get him um, to do this and, you know, they have this whole story and you can go check it out. It's on YouTube. Um, but they have this story where they're talking about that they wanted him to come in wearing all black and then have these reflective balls on him so they could do this mocap. But he shows up on the day of, and for some reason he's in like this like white slash gray kind of outfit. And they're like, Oh, you got to go change. You got to go change. This isn't going to work. And he's like, I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not going to change. You know? <laughs> so they end up filming it as is. And long story short, they send it off to this mocap place. That's going to do all the tracking work for them so that they can then start kind of putting their, you know, again, sort of primitive CGI skeletons on it. Um, and funny enough, they send it off to this uh, mocap place and they're like not able to do anything with it. Uh, and I don't entirely know what the back end of that story is. If the place was kind of, you know, telling them that they could do more than they could, or they just had a problem with it or whatever, but they weren't able to do anything with it. So they've had to come back and actually manually rotoscope it. And what Oof. was interesting about that is that they also, and th they were saying that, that like just a few lucky things fell into place for them. They had a, a camera on the backside so they could also kind of just keep track of, you know, all the other people plus Arnold walking through to kind of, you know, match pace and things like that. So between that camera view and then the mocap um, footage that they had, particularly because he was in a white outfit, they were able to rotoscope it. Basically, if he had been in a black outfit, the way that the rotoscope camera at that point was working or the, the mocap camera was working is that if he was wearing black, it, it just wouldn't have been able to see glob, it. He just yeah. would have been completely missing. Yeah. Um, all you would have seen was the reflective ball. So because they had enough of him in this lighter outfit, they were able to, between the two, combo in a rotoscope. And frankly, I, like you say, you know, it doesn't 100% look there. It's maybe like 90% of the way there. But I think it's actually still a really impressive shot um, for how it came out. And, you know, they, they did a pretty good job of it, given what they had for resources at that yeah. point. And, you know, 50 million to to its credit, sounds like a lot of money. But when you're doing a movie that's meant to have this massive scale and all this, you know, practical slash CGI effects, that money dries up real quick, even <laughs> even in, you know, 1990 or whatever. So Yeah, and they had so, a really sad little note at the end of that story, which was that um, his whole team had put in all this work. And that's pretty much one of the main reasons that they had actually won the Special Achievement Award from uh, the Academy for the effects. And uh, their team was not credited in the theatrical releases um, credits. Um, so he was saying like later on, 
um, when they came out with a VHS version, they finally got their credit in there, um, which was cool. But then I think he said again, like when the DVD came out, they did the theatrical version. So their <laughs> team got left left out of the credits again. Oh my so God. they've got a, a great little mini documentary on YouTube. You can go check out about their work and it's, it's definitely worth seeing. Wow. So this is a, this is two notes, but I'm going to combine it into one, uh, mostly for time. So, first of all, the amount of innocent bystanders that get killed in this movie <laughs> is is RoboCop level, and I, I it, it makes sense now that I think about it because of the director who did the same thing. Uh, yeah. But the the most egregious moment is when they're going up the escalator, and Richter and his guys are shooting at Schwarzenegger. And they use a they, one guy gets shot, right? And then Schwarzenegger uses him as a human shield. Yes. And this guy collects forty bullets in him after he's oh, already I'm sure dead. It's more than that, because they're all firing like automatic weapons, right. and it's just and, yeah. No, I, actually, I don't know how the guy like wasn't falling apart by the end of it, because yeah, he he, he took quite a brunt he, of that. He was like Swiss cheese, and then and then the poor bugger gets thrown down right. <laughs> The right. escalator. <laughs> Schwarzenegger takes the dead body of a guy that just got lit up with bullets and throws him at the bad guys. I was like, well, you know, Whoa. Uh, we have to give a little salute to random guy on escalator because you you saved Arnold's bacon and without you, Mars would never, never have survived been saved. and gotten there or anything. So, so we salute you. Sir. We salute you. Uh, random guy on the escalator. Number five. <laughs> So I, I had to point that out because it really yeah, was like, no, totally was one of those. Actually, for, as soon as you started saying it, I'm like, he's going to talk about that guy on the escalator. <laughs> so now here is something that I wrote down. When Richter is in the car and they're talking to Cohagen, this is where things nowadays you feel don't translate so they're talking to Cohagen on this little monitor in the car which is cool it's a cool effect to have that you know back then but then there's a dial on it that gives it static and he like oh i'm sorry you're getting a bad reception and it's just like back then we would we would we would get that joke because if you didn't have a cable box and you were playing with the, the bunny ears of a, of a television or you had to adjust the signal of a channel, you would have that kind of snow. Nowadays, you know, in 2020, you wouldn't have that. So if you think in 2090 or 2099 or whenever this movie is supposed to take place, uh, it was like that would not be a thing. Like You wouldn't have that dial. It just was a funny little thing I wanted to point out. Not really relevant to the story, but it just no, it's funny. true, and it, it is funny because it goes back to what we were talking about previously with the way the technology sort of, you know, when we create these futurized movies, we have a expectation of what things are going to be versus what they might ultimately be. And you know, you have some movies like Blade Runner that have done things, you know, far beyond where we're at right now with you know some of the hologram technology and you know floating cars and things like that. And then you have movies like this, and you know, I, I always think it's good when they do stick it in the somewhat distant future you know like when the 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 pitfall of the not too distant future is you end up with the back to the futures of the world where we're now past that point demanding our hoverboards and not getting them but you know throwing it a little further out in time it's maybe believable he's on a mars colony but (laughs) is it so believable that there's technology that introduces static into a, a feed i'm not so sure Right, And, you know, this is like if you go over, you know, we were talking about um, the other YouTube channel, uh, but uh, CinemaSins, um, you know, I'm sure if CinemaSins has done a total recall review, this is definitely one of those 
cinema sins because it's such an ongoing trope in movies and TV and, mm. and all sorts of things like that. That's like, oh no, static. I can't hear you, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's so old hat. And, you know, I, I can't even say that even when they filmed this movie, that that wasn't old hat at that point, yeah. you know, the bad connection is, is always been such a, a trope in these things, but yeah. it is funny. You're so right about that. So this is another, it's two bullet points that I wrote down, but I'm going to combine it into one. Uh, so the guy who calls him on the phone and tells him to wrap the turban around his head, I th- I always thought he had a bigger role in the movie than he did other than that one scene. I thought he was more significant because his face is so recognizable to me, but he's only really in that one scene, and I can't remember as to why he was so significant. But then the other caveat to that is Quaid knows how to wrap a towel around his head so perfectly to look like a turban. It's unbelievable. It's like, how could he have perfectly wrapped that thing with one, in one try? Like, no, it's, it's true. You know, there's a few funny little things in the movie like this. Um, you know, there's this scene in particular. And basically the, the reason he gives it that he's like, oh, I'm your old friend, you know, from before you got your memory wiped and you told me to bring this briefcase if, if ever something happened to you. And, you know, as the movie goes on, essentially, I guess that gets explained away by just like, oh, the agency is sending it or whatever, because they, you know, essentially um, Hauser came up with this idea with Cohagen that they were going to do this series of events, which would make him totally fall for it. And he'd become essentially like a double or triple spy and, and you know, like not even know that he's spying on the resistance. So it seems like things like that were all part of the plan. Um, he is just like a random guy that shows up for that one moment, never shows up again. So total kind of just like throwaway character in order to get him this briefcase. So I, I get that. Uh, you know, I feel like the other one, and I don't know if you know he's in your notes at some point too, but you know, later on, um, they have that other scene where the doctor shows up at his place yeah. and he like asks him, like, how did you even find me? And I still have that question too. Like, I don't know how either one of them knew right where he was going to be. Right. Like that guy that does that dead drop with him is like right outside his window. And it's yeah. like, how did he know he was going to be there at that exact time? Right. So there's definitely a few weird little, you know, like plot hole kind of things like that, you know, and it, it makes for a cool scene. Like, I love the idea that the guy is there, the doctor there is later, like trying to convince him that it's all still at recall. And, you know, Sharon um, comes back in and she's trying to convince him um, that this is all in his head and they've essentially like come into the matrix with him to yeah. convince him otherwise. And then you see that one bead of sweat and that throws the whole thing off somehow. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's little funny throwaway things, but you know, it's, it's great. It's kind of little classic moments in that movie. So the one thing that I thought would have been a cool twist, right. Is that guy at the phone. And I think I, have, I, I think when I was a kid and saw this movie, I thought the same thing that it would have been Schwarzenegger from the future. Like, further in the future. It was Quaid yeah, as an older I man. Mean, you know, that, I think that introduces the time travel element, which is just like a whole other can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I think if there's any reason why, it might just be that. And then you kind of have quasi a, a time travel element in so much as like we've said that, you know, he then ends up talking to his previous self, who we find out is a very different person than the current incarnation and, and kind of the uh, flaw in their grand plan is that the Quaid character would, you know, retain um, enough of who he is currently that he decides to 
be a good guy versus just going back to that bad guy. Yeah. Um, which is funny because, you know, they kind of, it's one of those like, Oh, they said the name, they said the name, you know, they have a point in time where I think Richter says like, he could have total recall at any moment, you know? And like the almost thing you can take away from that is if he has total recall, does Quaid go away? Does he just become mean old you know, (laughs) version of himself again? Um, So I don't know. It's, I guess he never quite actually then, attains total recall he kind of stays a half half amalgam of of who he was with the physical capabilities and the you know personality type of of the quaid character yeah so one of the best 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 things in the whole movie and i think it's still cool to this day is the hologram watch where he has a version of himself and when you first see it coming out of the shadows that sequence when he sees himself and he's kind of like doing the mirror thing and then when they bring it back later at the end of the movie and he and like all the guys shoot at the hologram and then he tosses the watch to Melina and they go back and forth with it that was even though you know it's like it's not really a hologram but just the way they played that whole thing out and that very initial showing of how that thing worked was such a cool moment. I loved that moment in the movie. I was like, wow, that's re- I forgot how cool that was. Yeah. It's really clever. I mean, again, it's, it's one of these things that like, you know, action movies and, and all movies do these sort of things at different points where it's like, I'm going to throw this cool piece of technology in that does this really fun or amazing thing. Like literally for the sake of doing that, you know, like minus that watch, the movie could have gone on, just as it did. You know what I mean? So there's just that setup and payoff of the fact that he gets that from himself in that briefcase and then goes on to do that. And the funny part is, is, you know, like it's kind of goes back to what you were just saying with the turban and everything, you know, like there's stuff that he did to himself that in a way trolled himself. You know what I mean? Because ultimately it seems like, you know, he has him tie this wet towel around his head to block the tracking device, but somehow they still end up tracking him. You know right. what I mean? So it, it, either like he, he did that as a joke on himself, like just to have <laughs> have himself running around in the wet turban for no good reason. And then same thing with this watch. I mean, like he really screwed himself up there because he put in this watch for himself to, you know, do his spy thing. And then really that watch kind of undoes the bad guy's ability to kind of take him out at the end of the movie because he has this tactical advantage over them because he can create duplicates of himself. Yeah. And um, so it, it, it's kind of like funny that, you know, it's like the <laughs> it, he kind of messed himself up in some ways in that respect. And, and not and a very thought out plan, Michael, not a very well thought out plan. It, it's not. And, and, and that's kind of why when you get the reveal that um, what's his old version? What's his spy version name? What's, Carl Hauser. Hauser, that's what it is. Yes. When when you when you get the reveal that it was all part of the plan that he did this to himself on purpose, it it doesn't it doesn't line up with the fact that he, throughout the whole movie he's giving himself advice as to what to do to stay alive and not get caught. Like it doesn't it doesn't line up for me fully. Yeah. I mean, there's several things like that. I mean, like you could argue the fact that Cohagen never lets his number one guy Richter in on it. Right. <laughs> you know, like obviously um, his wife knows about it and Cohagen knows about it. And there's various other people that know about it. Um, but, you know, like Richter, who's like his kind of like top dog guy who's going to be spending the most time chasing him, doesn't really find out until like three quarters of the way through the movie. Right. And like, that's another like 
big like boo boo, you know, like (laughs) that's something you should probably let him in on because, you know, they, they even say it in the movie, like you were trying to kill me. Like, you know, or he was like, why wouldn't anybody let him know about that? Yeah. That, that didn't make sense. And it gave a little bit of a couple of plot holes, but I, I let it go, whatever. It's fine. Um, the prosthetics in this movie are really terrific. And the the way that they do like the the mutated people on Mars and just like the eyes exploding out of their faces and and stuff like that like that was really really impressive and and like gruesome to see like the mutated kid and her mother and then the the guy in the bar and and that kind of stuff is very interesting to me because uh, yeah i mean i've got two points on that too is the funny thing so you know point a uh, I was trying to remember, and I think we were trying to remember in in the um, previous recall section, like why maybe necessarily they were mutants. I mean, I think you and I glossed over it just about as much as the movie did. You know, like essentially there's mutants and, you know, that enables the psychics and things like that. And they, you know, have this kind of important plot point that they need to ultimately drill down to, which is that Quato can touch Quaid and, and find out, you know, what the ultimate thing was in the um, pyramid on Mars. Um, but it, it's like a lot of hoops to jump through. And essentially when they try and explain it in the movie, somebody asks about the mutants, I, I, it might even be Quaid. And essentially the answer he gets is like, Oh, I don't know. It's like dirty and the air is a little funny and whatever, <laughs> you know, and like yeah. that apparently has caused these like rampant mutations in the population. Really bizarre because, you know, like there's no kind of, um, delineation between why there's some people on Mars that are perfectly normal and some that aren't because it seems like they're commingling quite a right. lot. It's not like there's like a dedicated little section where it's just all mutant people. Like there's quite a lot of regular people um, in that space. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a funny, again, another sort of like not 100% thought out thing. And funny enough, again, if you go back to these behind the scene things, they were apparently really struggling um, with revisions and revisions on this movie. They had three or four, I think actual different writers um, that were working together on this script. And I think they said in this behind the scenes thing, they went through like 40 iterations of the script before they oh, finally ended up right. with what they ended up with. Wow. So to get what we got out of that is a miracle because, you know, I think any other movie that goes through like super, super, super tons of revisions, multiple writers, multiple hands in that pot is usually going to be down where red surf was not, yeah. not up where, where total recall was. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then, um, you know, the other interesting thing, and again, like I, I'm like not trying to be too cool here with my behind the scenes stuff, but um, what was interesting because you and I were trying to figure out like, is this stop motion? What is this? So basically any of the times that you see them doing those scenes where like somebody's eyes are bulging out of their heads or the point where he's pulling the thing out of his nose or the point where he, um, lifts the head up, um, the, the woman's head up off of his head when he's in the airport or the not airport, I guess, spaceport, the space terminal. Um, <laughs> those are all life-size puppets. Oh yeah. That's one of them. I believe it. And that's really cool. And like, even like the Quado one, um, they were saying that they had something like, which is four, which 14 Qu- different puppeteers for that. Quado is the most gross thing in the whole movie. It was, Isn't it was it? like yeah. hard <laughs> to look at. It's really hard to look at. Yeah, no, he's definitely a little creepy, but uh, yeah, I mean, like even at that point, you know, and again, like this is in the vein of era when we see things like Yoda from Star Wars and different things like that. So this is sort of puppeteering is well established at this point, but you know, I, I thought that was really impressive and you can tell it's, it hits that uncanny Valley area where it doesn't quite look right. Like, you know, the one I'm really thinking of is, you know, any of the ones where their heads are bulging or whatever. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, that's definitely 
something's a little weird and off there, but you can accept it because of the scenario that it's in. Mm-hmm. But the the one that always kind of caught me off guard a little bit again is when he takes that um, woman's head off of his head. And, you know, like they did a pretty darn good job of matching up that essentially animatronic head, the head itself that opens up as animatronic um, to the real life actress's head. Um, but what's revealed underneath is him, but he doesn't quite look like him. And so sure enough, right? that's a puppet of him as well. I guess they didn't want to put that thing with all its metal whirring gears and everything clamping around his actual head for fear it might you know go wrong so they actually stuck a puppet version of him in there i was um, gonna so say that there, there's a there's I, like I just, a half a second cut where i'm like yeah. it looks like him but not really him and then all of a sudden it is him again and yeah, I was, it's a puppet yeah and so I, I i really am curious if that like arnold schwarzenegger puppet still exists somewhere in the world today um, because that, that is very funny to me in my mind that, you know, it, when you have a Quado puppet, that's one thing. When you have an Arnold Schwarzenegger puppet, that's a whole other thing. And I think that's very funny. So let's touch on this for a second. Cause I have a few little lines of notes here that I wanted to bring up the, the jump from him saying he needs to go to Mars to getting to Mars is a, a big stretch because it's like, how, how does he? Where does he get to the airport? How do we? Why? I would have loved to see the shuttle or whatever type of you know ship yeah, that you know, takes I think them. They very very briefly show the shuttle. There's kind of two things that they do. One is that he gets on a subway and he sees basically the opposite of the commercial he saw for Recall. So mm-hmm. like in Recall, they're like, "Why actually travel somewhere through space? Do Recall instead. It's much safer." And then he gets on this subway and he sees this uh, other <laughs> like ad that's like. Why go do to Mars? Brain butchers like actually travel there, yeah. you know. So he, it shows this ship that he ultimately does get on. But to your point, and I, I understand why you missed it. There's like I don't know, like a, a two second long shot of like the ship that he ultimately travels on, like lifting off, and like that's what they show. Next oh. thing is just at the at the spaceport. So yeah, it, it, it's not a big lead in. It's it's a really quick little transition. So I, if you blinked, you missed it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's another now. How did he get that costume of that woman? Like, how did he get that? We don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I think the big assumption is when he opens his suitcase, he has all those like space bucks, like all those red dollars yeah. or whatever that they work out of there. So I, I guess like money can buy you whatever you need or whatever. And I don't know, maybe there was some other info in some of his things or, or something. And who knows? Maybe there's even a deleted scene where he's finding another drop point or something. But uh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to let that go on the assumption that, you know, there might have been some extra information that got him where he needed to go with it. But I, I think that just ended up being like a fun sight gag because it's like, otherwise, how does he show up there right. not looking like himself and, and manage to get through the security that would obviously be there? So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, again, we're, we're certainly digging up the holes <laughs> in this one and there's plenty to find. Now, here's another big hole that I there was two actually that bothered me a lot. So when he's wearing the costume of the woman or, you know, whatever, there's a woman, she can only say two weeks, two weeks. He, t- yeah, he takes I mean, the head I off. Think she bugged out. Yeah. And, and and he takes the head off and then throws it to the cops. And yeah. then she, and then she <laughs> goes, get ready for a big surprise or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, it's it's again one of these like why does it happen sort of things that, you know, like he has this really cool functioning, um, completely lifelike visage that he's put on, you know, a la something out of like mission impossible. Um, 
but then it just totally starts spasming out at the worst possible time as Richter just happens to be crossing through the same space and everything. Yeah. Again, I mean, you know, it's just set up for, for more weird action scenes and things like that to happen. And, you know, the shootout that blows out the glass and kind of sets that expectation that like, if anything goes wrong, like, you know, the place can depressurize and things like that. Yeah. It's a lot of like funny, weird little things like that. So again, I'm, I'm willing to excuse it in, in the vein of like, you know, summer blockbuster check your head at the door <laughs> mm-hmm. the the last note i have about that particular scene is so this briefcase is so important but when he escapes the the terminal he leaves the briefcase behind and whatever was in it his weapons or whatever he had all of his equipment that he would have needed essentially that he left for himself he left in that airlock in that room and it just they totally forgot about it afterwards. Like, ah, it's gone. Yeah, well, that part's fuzzy for me, even after the rewatch, because uh, did he have a, a suitcase with him at that point? Because I know there was the initial suitcase he gets where he's talking to himself. He leaves behind, like, at the place where he opens it, because then um, Richter shoots the rat that had the tracking device and the blood explodes all over the mm-hmm. scene. So he left the one suitcase there. Did he acquire another suitcase? He had, a, when he came into the terminal, he had a suitcase in his hand and then Interesting. he Interesting. So you know what? Maybe we've uncovered a, a deleted scene or deleted yeah. portion of the story here because that might answer the question of how he got the uh, the outfit. Maybe he had a second scene, even with our, our mystery man who called him on the phone again that like, you know, set him up for another yeah. Um, sort of dead drop or something that's that's interesting i wasn't even thinking about that so here's something that i noticed and this is a a business thing in hollywood that i it was abundantly clear throughout the whole movie and i kept seeing it all over the place there is a lot of product placement in this movie coca-cola, oh, yeah. coca-cola you see evian water nike the hilton they mentioned 15 times yes pepsi, <laughs> uh, pepsi sharper image miller light bark soda there was several more those are the ones that i saw really hey, quick good for you for for catching so many of them <laughs> yeah well like, you know what we, we've been talking about that production budget you gotta get that budget somewhere i guess you gotta, gotta pay for that movie somehow yeah um so they made a big deal about the this the precious metal on mars which they called turbinium yes. but they did but but they didn't establish obtainium <laughs> yeah exactly uh you know what what did they 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 never established why this metal is so important. Like, what does it do? What is uh, does it fuel the whole planet? Does it does it fuel the space shuttles? Does it? I do something I'm for leaning Earth? towards space travel. Um, it must be because um, it seems to be kind of a rarity thing, and they're they're mining it for a reason. And they also talk about its like explosiveness, its volatility. Right. Because again, like you know, Cohagen even at the end of the movie still doesn't want Arnold to hit that button because he seems to really firmly believe, you know, Arnold kind of keeps calling him out on it. Like, Oh, you know what this does. You know what it actually does. But he goes to his death, Cohagen, like really kind of screaming about the fact that it's going to blow them all up. If, if, you know, he sets that off. So he has this feeling that's going to do that. I don't understand why, because, you know, like in that giant chamber in the pyramid, really all you see is those kind of like big, you know, fuel rod things and the ice you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. the, you know, they kind of make a point that like the entire core of Mars is a glacier, yeah. which, you know, like that might become problematic <laughs> because yeah. I don't think you can have a planet whose entire core is, is a glacier and, and it'd be a possibly suitable planet, especially if you empty that, excuse me, empty that glacier out. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to work out for them, but that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm leaning towards it. It must be used for rocket fuel or something, which is, 
I, I guess in a way kind of funny because it seems like they're kind of, you know, heading out to Jupiter and they're heading to all places in the uh, solar system. So I don't know. It must just be, you know, money grab as, as far as that resource goes. But yeah, I don't know. It's really kind of a weird one. So I got the impression that Mars is intended to be what Earth was or would have been in the 90s, right? Like it's not as high tech. It's it's like a newer, like people are, are going there for refuge or whatever, whereas Earth now is supposed to be this mecca of technology and and prosperity and whatever. And And they're almost saying as if Mars is what the world was in the 90s where it was, you know, hostile in a lot of countries and, you know, challenging yeah, at times. You know, I mean, I think the Mars we get in that movie is like your prototypical frontier town. Yeah, that's you what know, it is. They've got exactly. the saloon with the hookers that they show up to. You know, it's yeah. like very old West sort of thing, you know, and, and I think that's you know what you're going to get on any of those sort of things. Um, I, I feel like when they were talking about anybody doing pleasure cruises, it was always to like the rings of Saturn or something yeah. like that, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I think you ended up with that. I, I think one of the things that confounds me about Mars in this movie is that you do have this amazing large plot point, which is that there's some insane alien technology buried on this planet and that they had set it up to, you know, essentially oxygenate the planet. And that, for me, raises so many other questions that they really never touch back on. You know, I mean, like the, the obvious question, I think, is, you know, who are these aliens? Why did they seemingly have no presence on Earth? And why is the one grand thing that they did to make this gigantic machine that will oxygenate that planet? Like, were they mm-hmm. prepping it for people on Earth? You know, like, where did they go? I, I think the second point is, is like, why is that the only thing that seemingly they left behind on Mars? You know, like, they're digging into all these hills and building this frontier area, but they're not in the very, very close vicinity of this huge, like, marvel finding any sort of other seemingly alien technology. Now, again, maybe Artifacts, there's a nothing. story... Yeah. yeah, maybe there's a side story to all this where, like, they showed up there and found some of this pre-existing, you know, place dug out for them. And, and maybe there was stuff and they're just keeping that under wraps and they're not talking about it in this movie. But it seems really weird that this, like, a big advanced civilization, and I think they say it's like 500 million years ago that the machine was built. I think mm. they somehow are able to date it in, like, a little throwaway line. Yeah. Um, have not apparently left any kind of other signs of their existence elsewise to the point that there being Martian stuff that they've found in this pyramid is essentially like a big rumor. Like people don't know if they should believe it or not. So there's no other sign that that's there. So again, I think this comes out of their writing process. And again, they kind of alluded to this in the behind the scenes thing that, um, you know, they were talking about how do we end this thing? And like this idea that they would make this Martian artifact that would oxygenate the air. And that would be the big thing that would be the draw for why the resistance was fighting so hard and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's kind of another just like weird little thing you have to kind of take at face value, but it seems really weird because, you know, again, this has got some of the writers that go on to write Alien and Aliens, and, you know, they have that same subtlety in the way that they approach that, but there's definitely a lot more artifacts, if you will, that mm-hmm. kind of go to show that there's this precursor race and, and things like that. So maybe they were kind of like building towards that or something, but um you know i I don't know it it just seems like there's a lot left unsaid about that and you know maybe that's fine maybe that's a whole other can of worms that we don't want to get into for this particular story but uh you know the sci-fi nerd in me is like i want to know more (laughs) but it it it, certain things like that 
then it gets called into question is it in his mind or is it real like you know are they trying to say like because certain things are unexplained and they just kind of like exist with no real backstory as to why is it yeah, like so, i mean is that's it manifested my for you you know yeah. Yeah, I wanted to come back and circle back on this, like having watched it again now, now that it's fresh in your head, like, does it change your opinion at all? Do you do you see more ambiguity here or is it become more clear cut that, you know, this stuff is all really happening to him? Like, where do you kind of lie on that now? So I really had to think about it and I had to watch the very last minute or two a couple of times. And here's the thought that I have. And it's it's kind of an interesting thing is that when Cohagen gets thrown out of the airlock, he dies within, let's call it three minutes, let's say, in real time. Uh, Quaid and Molina are out there in the middle of this before the, the atmosphere is fully established for what could feel like 10 minutes of time. And they come out unscathed, basically. And that was my first question as to how did they last so much longer outside the airlock than he did? (laughs) Yeah, I think if you're going to try and explain that off, it's just that he was out there longer than them and that the chain reaction hadn't started yet. So he just literally had nothing. And then maybe as the chain reaction was ramping up, they were getting little bits of it. I mean, at the end of the day, I think if you're to that point where your face was so like blown up and exploding as theirs were, you know, as soon as air shows up, it's not just gonna all going to shrink back happy as you right. were, and and you're going to be left without any kind of medical issues. But you know, I, I, you know that's a whole other thing. I, I don't know why they necessarily had to go with that final choice. They could have probably gone with a scene just of the same where they were like holding on to each other and managed to like hold on just in enough time that they didn't get sucked out or something. I mean, uh, yeah, I think you could argue that you know one way or the other. Uh, I think the things that really throw it off for me is that there's there's kind of a couple things that go either direction. I think in one respect, and this is more coming from like a beyond the fourth wall look at the movie, is that there's a number of scenes that have nothing to do with him. It's scenes where we're getting information on the other people. There's and that giant shootout in, other, in the bar. He's not even there. Yeah. That, and that like, you know, there's scenes shooting. like, you know, where we get Sharon Stone's character talking to people and things like that. You know, there's, there's a bunch of different little scenes like that, that he's not privy to. And, from a movie going perspective, you know that you need things like that sometimes to help fill in the viewer on who these characters are and why they're motivated. But I've seen other movies that have been in the same sort of vein, like something like the sixth sense, let's right. say where it stays on that character the whole time. And you don't really realize until that last moment. Oh, all right. You know, it, it, it really was with him the whole time. You know, you, you don't have anything where it went off on its own. So that's a big, like mark on the side of like this is really happening because otherwise why would they implant memories of these other people in that same thought like they i don't know how they would have the ability at recall to have a like dedicated character that's literally his wife in real life you know that would be able to be so functionally a part of his story Mm -hmm. you know like where would they be able to generate those memories but you know maybe you can trump that up to technology right i don't know (laughs) you know what i mean on the flip side of this when they do go to implant him initially, they say a few things like, oh, uh, you know, the alien package and like, you know, the brunette and all this sort of thing. And it's like and then like even the little like uh, tech, the nerdy tech guy says like, oh, blue sky on Mars. That's a new that's a new one. And like 
that's a little bit of weird foreshadowing, you know, because right. could it have been coincidental that they had written the exact same thing that would ultimately end up happening to him as a memory that then really happens in real life? You know, ooh, that's a stretch, you know, so it yeah. could put it over into that vein of like, yeah, these are his memories and he's just about to wake up as soon as the movie credits roll. So I don't know. They they really did a pretty good job of having things that kind of go both ways and and sort of leave it there. I think I'm still on the side of the fence that this really happened. So um, so I, I have yeah. <laughs> I have two last points. So after he kills Richter, he's he's going up in that elevator, right? And I'm I'm going a little bit backwards in the story from where we were. That's all right. But there's this big steel track that the elevator is on in the super wide shot like it's really really wide the elevator is going up and as it goes up the track is disappearing <laughs> just, a little technical glitch yeah like, i don't think whoops. i caught that one <laughs> I, I i had to watch it twice i'm like wait a minute did I, did, is, it, is the track going away i was like oh yeah it is that's just something i noticed that was kind of funny it's like hey, you, that's you, funny you wouldn't know that and like if you watch it the first time you wouldn't even see it but i just happened to see it it's like this bright yellow track and as as the elevator's going up it's disappearing i'm like whoa okay <laughs> yeah because so, i'm not sure if you know i don't know if they would have done that with miniatures or like you know i'm, I'm sure there's some stuff in there that's like matte paintings right so i'm curious if like they were painting it in or i don't know that's a good question i have to go back and and look for that now so now here is my question as to if it was real or if it was a dream or if he's dead and it's memories of him of his actual life um at the very very end he says oh i just had a terrible thought what if this is a what if this is a dream and then she says well you know let me kiss me before you wake up and then you see yep. this bright white light and, and the whole s- screen gets encapsulated with white light. And I almost wonder, you know, if you know how in the beginning of the movie they talk about the guy who died when they went to recall because he had like a brain yes. aneurysm or whatever. Yeah. My question was, what if the guy they're talking about is actually him? Yeah, that could be. Um, you know, there's an episode of um, Black Mirror that kind of goes yes. down that route um, where the guy is like sort of in like a horrific sort of situation. I think he was supposed to be like play testing a game or something like that. That's that's kind of like yeah. in this same sort of thought where it's like a VR in your head sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of goes that same route. And then sure enough, at the end, spoiler alert, um, it's it, he kind of like dies. But we're experiencing everything like, you know, in that in that like he's experiencing it in real time. But it's all happened in like a couple of seconds back in the real world or something yeah. like that. Like in yeah, a moment. I mean, yeah. you know, I think that's absolutely a third route that it could go to. And yeah, you know, like that fade to white versus a fade to black, which is much more typical in, in movie fare, uh, could be that. It could be that he's he's seeing the white light. It could be that he's he's dying. It could be that he's waking back up in the chair at recall. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's definitely you know, I, I think they did a good job with some of those visuals and those cues to kind of make it still kind of stay ambiguous at the end. And I do appreciate that. You know, it, it's sometimes fun to come out of a movie like that, especially, you know, it's like, as we've been discussing, not like the world's most <laughs> completely thought out um, thing. It's not like a real like brain cruncher or something like that. But, you know, it, it leaves you like a little like, what if, you know, and that's kind of fun. Yeah, no, it 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 does give a good like, you know, could it have been this? Could it have been that? And it didn't like slam us over the head like lost. Oh, everybody was dead from the beginning. You just didn't know it. You know, like I, I, I appreciated that because, you know, 
you could go into this movie and just watch it as an action movie and, oh, it's a happy ending. That's the sun coming up. Or you could look a little bit deeper and it's like, did he die? Is, is it, it a dream? Yeah. Is it this? Is it that? And it makes you wonder. And like you said, there is sequences of the movie or scenes in the movie where he's not even there. So it's like, what are we seeing here? You know, we're not seeing his memory. We're seeing Richter's memory. We're seeing Sherrod Stone's memory. We're seeing yeah. this, that, or whatever, or who knows, or whatever it might be. And I, I appreciate that. It was cool. I think I'd love to see one of the early drafts of the script or even like read the Philip K. Dick book, or the short story, and see what that actually was supposed to be and maybe it was a dream maybe it was dead maybe he's lawnmower man who knows i don't know (laughs) yeah no it's true i mean there's just like there's like one too many coincidences to make it super cut and dry i mean maybe here we go i'm gonna i'm gonna pitch this to you maybe instead of total retail it's total coincidence (laughs) all right that was a good one (laughs) but uh yeah i mean yeah it's just it's just very laden with a lot of these weird coincidences that like I think keep it from being a hundred percent cut and dry that it's real world, but who knows? Stranger things yeah. have happened, I guess. That's true. <laughs> so that's our review of Total Recall starring Arnold Schwarzenegger from 1990. This was our first installment of Box Office 30. Check us out next time. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite franchises, the Die Hard franchise with Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks. See you next time. Thank you for taking Johnny Cap. We hope you enjoyed the ride. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.